Welcome to the podcast of Destiny Community Church. Well, it's my honor to be here and to get to preach uh, the last message in this series, Lost and Found. So we're going to finish this one up today. If you have not been around, let me give you just a real quick recap on what this series, Lost and Found, is about. We're taking all of this from Luke chapter 15, and in Luke chapter 15, there are three stories that Jesus tells that we call parables. If you're not familiar with a parable, a parable is not necessarily a true story. In fact, it is more of an anecdote. It's more of a metaphor. And so Jesus was famous for using these stories that he would make up that would illustrate these really deep spiritual truths. And so we have been talking about the three stories that are found in Luke chapter 15, because when he starts rolling with these stories in Luke 15, he doesn't stop. It's one after the next after the next. And the whole big picture is him trying to explain 2,000 years ago, and then fast forward to today, he's trying to explain to us just how much God loves his creation. And so that's what this whole thing is really all about. But when Jesus gets started with these stories, he does it in response to a situation that he is in. And we find this in Luke chapter 15 in verses 1 and 2. And we've read this every week of the series, and I think it's important to read this again, because the, the situation that Jesus finds himself in that prompts this story, it goes like this. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, him being Jesus. So all of these religious people are coming around, they're crowding around Jesus, or I'm sorry, the tax collectors and sinners are crowding around Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so the way that this whole thing starts out is that Jesus is hanging out with some people that have terrible reputations. Can we just get really honest today? Uh, tax collectors were looked at kind of like organized crime mob bosses back in the day. And when, when it talks about tax collectors and sinners, some other people that might have been in the crowd, it would probably not have been uncommon for there to have been some prostitutes in the crowd with this group of sinners. In fact, back then, there was this belief that was held by people that if you had any kind of a deformity from birth, that you were a sinner by birth, and so there was probably some people that looked a little different than everybody else, and so this, this crowd of people that probably didn't fit in a lot of other places, that didn't get invited to go to a lot of parties, and that didn't get to hang out with a lot of people, these are the people that Jesus chooses to hang out with. And if that doesn't tell us everything about the nature of God and everything about who Jesus is, then I don't know what does, because he hangs out with people that know they need him. And so he's spending all of his time with these people with these shady reputations and all of the religious people are a little upset. They're jealous. They don't understand why he's ruining his reputation to hang out with them and to spend time with them. They're probably a little jealous that he's not spending any time with them because they're the ones that have studied the Bible all their lives and they know everything about the Bible. And so there's probably some jealousy in play there. And so he hears their grumbling or he knows their grumbling. And that's when he launches into these three stories. This is how he addresses the, the complaining of these really ultra-religious people that Jesus is hanging out with sinners. And he uses these three stories, and they're all stories that have something in common. Something is lost, that thing is found, and then there's a party that happens afterwards, right? <laughs> That's the party afterwards. <laughs> it's going to be interesting. I have no idea what's going to happen today, guys. I'm tired. Uh, um, 
And so something is lost, something is found, and then there's a party. The first week we talked about the lost sheep. The second week was about the lost coin. Today we're talking about the lost son, or what we would probably know better as the prodigal son. And so in week one, we talked about how there were this, there's this story that Jesus tells of these 100 sheep and this good shepherd that is in charge of these sheep. One sheep wanders off because that's what sheep do. And in the Bible, there is this parallel between humanity and sheep because we have a tendency to wander off. We have it great in the hands of God. We have it great in the kingdom of God, but we see greener pastures and we just want to take off for those greener pastures. And so this whole story is about Jesus finding us, hunting us down, not because he's angry with us or he wants to punish us, because he wants to love us and he wants to bring us back. And really that first week, that first story is not about how we come to God, but it is about how God came to us. And then last week, Pastor Rocky taught on the lost coin, the parable of the lost coin, that there was this woman who had 10 coins. She lost one. She flips the house upside down to find that one coin. When she finds the coin, what happens? She throws a party. And if week one was about the lost sinner, Pastor Rocky talked about how the second part of this uh, parable that he tells, the parable of the lost coin, is about the lost church. And how easy it is for us as Christians to be in church sitting in these beautiful blue chairs, and to be lost in our sin, right? Lost as we are, as anybody would be outside of this exact room. And so there's, there's this, this idea that the second week is about the, the church and how it's possible to be lost inside of the church and how we need to. It is our responsibility to restore the reputation of the church. And how do we do that? He so beautifully talked about how we do that by being about the lost. We need to be about the lost. And so we get this opportunity to sum things up today with Luke chapter 15, and we're going to get started in verse 11. Now here's my warning. My warning is the first two stories that Jesus tells are a little shorter in length. The last story is a lot longer in length. And so I've kind of gone back and forth. Do we read the whole thing? Do we jump around? I feel like it's really important that we read the entire story. And I, I recognize and I know that maybe you're already familiar with the prodigal son. Most of us are. But I think it's really important for us to read this, knowing the context, knowing that Jesus is telling this story in a crowd of people where some are, are so religious that they think they have earned salvation and some are just so bad off and destitute that they are just leaning on every word that Jesus speaks. And so the first time that he talks, he talks about this sheep and the shepherd. So it's kind of like this, this, this property, this ownership kind of an idea, this mentality. The second time he talks about the coin. And even though there's a lot of social implications there, it's a really material thing. And then he drives it home with this like exclamation mark of a story about father and sons. And so we pick up in verse 11, Luke 11, or, I'm sorry, Luke 15, 11, it says this, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. Everybody say two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed, to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. 
But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran, and embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. Again, he was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. <laughs> and he called one of the servants and asked that these or what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when, the son of, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And you said to him, son, you are all, and he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. That'd be a great name for a series. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love. We thank you that your love for us knows no ends. God, that you are so gracious to us. I pray that today we would get just a glimpse of your grace, God, and that we would know to accept it, that we can't earn it, that nothing we have ever done would ever be good enough to earn your forgiveness and your grace, but God, you give it freely. Give us ears to hear your word. Speak to our hearts today, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever said something that you absolutely regret? Like you said something and as soon as the words left your mouth, you tried to grab the words and put them back in. It was that bad. For me, when I was like 10 or 11 years old, somewhere in that area, I remember that we were at a church event and me and my dad were there and the church event was over and so a lot of people had gone home but there was a group of 10 or 15 of us talking and hanging out because that's what church people do. We don't know how to leave a place. We just stand around and talk forever, right? And so we're standing around and we're talking and we knew all these people really well. I mean, we, we were close to all these people that were in this group group. And um, something you need to know about me, if you don't know already, is I, I tend to be a little sarcastic. That's not something I just picked up over the last couple of years, okay? This has been like from birth. Uh, I don't know. It's like, I, I don't know how it happened, but I've, I've just kind of, as long as I remember, I've kind of had like that little, you know, sarcastic streak. And so when I was 10 or 11, I had it, but I had no idea how to control it. You know what I mean? It's like a superpower that you have no idea how to wield. I need a Professor Xavier to help me. But um, and so I'm standing in this crowd, and everybody's just kind of joking back and forth. You know how it is when you're in a group of people, and you just know each other really well, and you can say things, and you can get away with things, and you can joke about things, and nobody gets offended. And so we're all kind of joking around. And I'll be honest, I don't remember what happened that led to the comment that I made. But I remember what happened after I made the comment. 
So we're all talking and messing around, and we're all kind of messing with each other. I don't know what led to it, but I, it, something that was said triggered a response in me or a joke in me, and I, I, I said something really kind of like, you know, um, kind of sharp, directed toward my father about his bald head. I was making fun of my dad because he was bald. The irony is thick in this story if you can't figure that out. <laughs> and so I made fun of it. And, and you know, like, have you ever been in a situation and somebody says something that they don't know what they've said is like not cool, but everybody else knows that it's not cool? That was me. I was like, ha ha, I made a funny joke. And everybody's eyes got really wide. And I just looked at my dad and my dad is one of the most patient men that I have ever known in my entire life. He is just, I mean, just controlled. And so he looked at me and he just kind of cut eyes at me, which is very out of character for my dad. And I remember he gave me that look, that nonverbal communication that parents end up developing with their children as if to say, boy, you're lucky there are people here, but later there will be no one around and we'll see what happens then. And I remember the conversations that followed. And I remember how hurt my dad was that I would do this and disrespect him publicly. And I didn't mean to do it, but I was just kind of like my, my words got out ahead of me. And so we had this, this great talk together and I apologized profusely. And that's when I figured out I had to start reining that sarcastic tongue in. Sometimes I do great at it. Most of the time I don't, but I, I started in that moment to figure some of those things out. And then afterwards we hugged and my dad prayed over me. He laid his hand on my head and he said, double portion, God, of what I have, I give. <laughs> so, jokes on Andrew, genetics, right? Yeah. We've all done it. We've all said something that after we say it, we regret it, right? Or we didn't mean it, or we didn't mean it that way, or we misspoke, or we used too many words when a few words would do. Can I get an amen, right? So we know what that feeling is like. But Jesus, in his time on earth, he didn't have any of those moments. You see, Jesus, when he spoke something, when he said something, when he told a story, when he preached, or when he was talking to an individual, he never wasted words. There were no words that came from him that are recorded in scripture that he says, and then back when he's with his disciples said, oh man, that offended some people, right? Should I not have said that? Should I have said it differently? Can I phrase that differently for my next sermon that's coming up as to not offend as many people? Or should I tell that story a different way? No, Jesus is calculated in what he says. What he says, he means, and there is power behind what he says. And so as he is telling these stories, this collection of three stories, he knows exactly what he's saying. He knows exactly what kind of responses he's going to get from the people that are listening to these stories. And he uses specific instances to really kind of put an exclamation mark on this whole entire series of three stories with the, the, the story of the prodigal son. And, and I want to I pause here just for a moment because as I was preparing this message, I just feel like God wants me to say this to somebody in the room and you might not even want to listen to it and you might not want to hear it and that's fine. You do with it what you want, but I just feel like I need to obey God right now. That because we are talking about a story that Jesus told of a father and his relationship with his children, that there, there might be a tendency for you depending on what your history looks like with fathers or father figures or maybe for you as uh, a, you know, a, a mom and the, you know, the father that's in the picture is, is not the best example of a father, or maybe there's even fathers in the room and you just feel like you've messed up and you've, you've just made so many mistakes. And so when we talk about father, there's this pushback, right? Because of, of, of what we've experienced, because of what we know about maybe our earthly fathers. And so there's this, this kind of like initial like, mm, I, don't, I don't know if I can really kind of get all in on this story because I, I don't know this whole like the good father thing. Like I don't, I don't, I don't have that experience. 
I, I just want to tell you right now that this story is not about our earthly fathers. This story is about our heavenly father. And where your earthly father may have failed you, I promise you that our heavenly father does not fail us because God's word says that God is love and that love never fails. And so in all of those places that your dad might have messed up, I can promise you that God is more than enough. And so as we talk about the story and as we really kind of excavate some points out of this story, I don't want that to trip you up because the meaning of this story and the character of God is just so, so important for us to know. And I would, I would just hate for anybody to miss it because we have got these preconceived ideas of what fatherhood might look like. And so let's just kind of come to this thing together today, knowing that this story is about our heavenly father. This story, the father in this story is absolutely God in this story. And if you're in the context of when Jesus is telling this story, the lost son is all of the sinners that are around him, the son that stayed home and was faithful but upset at the end. Those are all the Pharisees there. And I guarantee you, if you'll allow God to speak to you, you'll see yourself maybe in one or both of these sons, depending on where you are in your life right now and in relation to your relationship with God this morning. And so we know this story, even though it's got a few different names, the lost son or whatever, we know this story most as the prodigal son, right? That's the most popular way to talk about this story. And I'll be honest with you, until recently, I just assumed what the word prodigal meant. Have you ever done that? Have you ever heard a word and then just assumed what it meant? I've heard some of you use words that are not supposed to be used for what they are, so I know you assume that, right? Literally, I know you assume that because literally means actually, right? So I digress. And so I didn't really understand the full weight of this word because I just always have heard it in this context. I'm a church kid. I grew up in church. So you hear the prodigal son, and you know the prodigal son was the one that went away. He rebelled. He did his own thing, and then he came back. So I'm thinking, okay, that's what, that's what prodigal means. It means rebellious. It means the one that leaves or the one that goes away. And even in the context, I've had conversations with, with some of you even in this room about your grown children that have walked away from their relationship with Christ, and we use this term to put on that because it makes sense to to us because of this story. But the actual definition of prodigal, and it'll be on the screen behind me, it means this, spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. Reckless spending, extravagant spending. This absolutely fits when we talk about the younger son in this story. So let's recap this story quickly. There's this kid, right? This is what Jesus said. There's this man who has two sons, and the first one, the younger one, is this like entitled millennial kid, right? <laughs> and he shows up to dad one day, and he says, listen, I know that I've got this big inheritance coming to me when you're dead, but I can't party as hard when I'm old, so I want the money now. Basically, he's saying this, I don't want to wait until you're dead to get my cut. And so I want to kind of like, I want our relationship to be a little bit more like if you had died already, that's what I want to have. Like I want that money in my pocket. Essentially in this culture, that would be the equivalent of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so that I could have your stuff, right? I mean, the, the ultimate picture of entitlement right there. And so he goes to his dad and he says, I want all of what's coming to me. I want all of my inheritance. And the dad gives him his inheritance, gives him all this money. We're led to believe that this man is pretty wealthy as well. And so there was probably a lot of inheritance coming to this son eventually. And so there's this large amount of money that goes to this son. And then we all know what comes next. The son takes off and leaves. 
Now let's be really honest, all the parents in the room, right? How many of you read this part of the story and if you're really honest, you're like, oh heck no, right? Like you're, if, if that is my kid, you know, you start the snap going, right? That would never, ever happen. There's no way. I would look at that kid and I'd say, you can go wherever you would like to go, but you're going nowhere with my money, right? I, I heard this interview recently um, with a, a famous actor and, um, and he was just kind of, you know, joking around about some things. And, and he, said, um, he said that his kids are getting to the age now when they realize that this person is famous, right? This person is, is really famous and recognizable and they're getting to the place in life where they realize how much money this, you know, actor father of theirs has. You know, when you're a kid, you have no idea if you're broke or rich. You don't know because it doesn't really matter. You just know what you know, right? It's not until you get a little older and you're like, oh wait, that person has that and I don't, or I have that and that person does and I guess we're rich. And so his kid came to him one day and said, dad, are we rich? And he said, no, I'm rich. You got nothing, right? <laughs> like that's, that's what this would be for me, right? So my kid walks up to me and says, hey, I want half of what's mine. You got nothing. Maybe you can buy the clothes that are on your back for me because I own those too. And you can walk if you want to walk, but you're walking alone and broke out of this house, right? That's what kind of makes sense to us. But that's not what the father in the story does. That's not the character and the nature of God. The character and the nature of God is that God loves us so much that he gives us the option to walk away from him that God gave his son for us as a sacrifice that we would not have to experience eternity without him in hell. He gives us that as an inheritance and then he gives us the option to take it or to leave it and just to walk away. As a parent, I'm just gonna be very honest with you, that's very, very difficult for me to figure out. That's very, very difficult for me to, to try to filter down and really truly understand. Because you have to know that the father in this story knows what's coming next, right? We know as parents, like if your kid's gonna make a dumb decision, you can usually see it coming down the line. And you usually try and sit down with them and say, if you keep doing this, this is what's gonna happen. Because I'm older and I'm wiser and I know these things. And it would have been so much more it's been easier for us to, to make sense of this if, if the father sat the son down and at least gave him that little like disciplinary talk before he left. But the father knows as soon as this kid gets the money, he's out the gate and he is headed straight for destruction. And the father lets him walk away because God loves us so much that he gives us the choice. Because if we don't have a choice whether we're going to serve and love him, then is it really even love at all? It's not. And so God says, you can, you can have all of this, I'm going I'm to give you all of this, and then you make the choice if you want to stay with me or if you want to do your own thing. And we know what the son chose to do. He chooses to, to walk out, and he lives this crazy, lavish lifestyle full of parties and women and alcohol and substances and whatever else you could think of, like the strip at Las Vegas, like 24-7 for this guy. And then tough times hit, he goes broke and he comes to his senses when he's in the middle of this field feeding some pigs, and he is so hungry because he has nothing that the food that the pigs are eating starts to look pretty appetizing, and that's when he comes to his senses. And that's when he starts to formulate this master plan to return to his father's house because he says, man, even the servants at my dad's house, they're not worried about where they're going to sleep or what they're going to eat. And I, I could just go back there as, as a servant. I don't even have to go back as a son. I could just go as a servant. And that would be better than where I'm at now. 
So he starts doing what we all do when we do something stupid and then want to make amends for it as we start to rehearse our speech, right, our apology speech. And so he says, you know, Father, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God and I don't even want to be your son anymore. I know I'm not worthy of that. I just want to be a servant. So he's got this whole thing down. You ever rehearsed an apology speech before, right? At work or at home or when you were a kid or when you were like a teenager and you, you know, you got a dent in the car and you're like, oh my gosh, my mom and dad are going to kill me. And so you're rehearsing like, you know, I, I, this is what I'm going to say and then this is what I'm going to say. And the best ones are when you like already know the punishment you're going to give yourself so they don't have to, right? So you can kind of get out of that one. You know, and you're like, mom and dad, I've messed up. I've sinned against you and our holy God. <laughs> and there is a dent in the car and I'm so sorry, but this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to work all summer long, and I'm going to earn the money, and then I'm going to pay you back for everything, and then on top of that, I'm going to fill the car with gas sometime. And then also, I'm grounding myself for a month, right? And then the worst ones were when mom and dad would be like, okay, that's fine. I was going to ground you for like a week, but if you want a month, that's great. <laughs> Parents know stuff, man. They just know stuff. So he's rehearsing this speech. He's getting his I'm sorry speech ready. He's ready to just basically throw himself at the mercy of his father, just hoping that dad lets him back in the gate. Forget being a son, just let me back in the gate. And dad sees him from a distance on the horizon, and he runs. Dad runs to his son who shows up far way off in the distance. And this is significant for a couple of reasons, because the dad's response tells us everything about God's grace toward us. One is that, that if the father was able to see the son coming from a long way off, that means that the father had to have been looking for the son. And he didn't know when the son was going to come back, and so there's a really good chance that as soon as the son walked out to waste all of that man's money after he said, I wish you were dead and I just want what's coming to me, there's a really good chance he'd been waiting on the wall for his son to return, staring at the horizon, hoping to see that silhouette pop up above that hill so that he would have the chance to welcome him back. He was waiting and he was watching. And then on top of that, when he sees him, he runs, which in Middle Eastern culture, that was unheard of for a man to run toward anything. Men didn't run back then. It was beneath them, especially someone of significant wealth, which is we can assume this man in this story. And so he runs. He basically is just reckless in this moment. He doesn't care what other people think. He doesn't care what the neighbors start to say. He doesn't care about anything except getting to his son. He's going to lower himself and the position that he holds as a father, and he is going to run so that he can get to his son a little bit quicker because he's been waiting for a long, long time for this moment. And he gets to his son and the son starts the speech of sinned against you and against God and, and all that. And he doesn't even get to the good part where he gets to punish himself. And dad just wraps him up with a huge hug and kisses him and, and gives him a ring, which would signify that he's back in the family again, that he's not going to be a servant. He's going to be a son again. And then he cleans him up and brings him clean clothes and he brings him inside and they have this barbecue and they eat steaks and they party. <laughs> they party. You see, the same God that loves us enough to let us walk away from him is the same God that will run to us, that is watching for us, that is waiting for us. Because he loves us so much to let us walk, but he loves us so much that he'll run. He loves us that 
much. And think about this son. Think about this son walking back and saying, I, I, I'm just going to say these things. I'm just going to apologize and hope that he takes me in. And then all of a sudden, you don't even get your whole speech out. And dad's wrapping you up and making you a son again and whisking you inside and throwing this huge party for you. Imagine how this kid must have felt. Imagine how humbled he must have been in that moment. Imagine how his life went from broke with nothing, having turned his back on his family, to being back in his father's kingdom in an instant just because he chose to turn around and come home. Imagine how good that must have felt from being so far away from his father to then being in his father's embrace and back in the family. And I can tell you that if you are far from God today, God is waiting for you, and he is watching on the horizon for your return, and he is ready to run to you and wrap you up and welcome you back into his kingdom. And I truly believe that if that's you this morning, that God brought you here today to hear this 2,000-year-old story to let you know that he is today ready for you to come back home. But when Jesus starts this whole story, he starts the story like this. He doesn't say, this is a story of a prodigal son. He says, there was a man who had two sons. So the story doesn't end with the bear hug and the, the party and the filet mignon. It doesn't end with that. The story continues. And we find that the older brother comes in from working really, really hard in the field. And he hears this party. And he hears dancing. And there's a, there's a rager happening back at home. And before he even gets there, he knows something big is going on. And so he asks one of the servants, hey, what is happening in there? And he said, you're, the, the younger son, your little brother, he's home. He came home. And, and your dad is throwing this huge party for him. And the older brother has the reaction that we all like to point fingers at and be like, how dare he? But it's the same reaction that we all would have. He crosses his arms and he says, I'm not going inside. I'm not going in there. Because think about what this older brother has thought about all these years. That jerk brother of mine took a bunch of money from my dad, ruined my father's reputation and my reputation in turn, went out and just squandered it and lived this party lifestyle, and all of a sudden he comes crawling back home. I've been here working in the fields. I've been faithful to the family business. I've been right here with my dad the whole time, never asked for anything. I don't even get a goat to throw on the grill. I don't even get lamb chops. This kid gets the whole cow. And he's just angry about it. He's salty. He's just arms crossed. Like, I'm just, I don't want anything to do with this party. And man, put yourself in the father's shoes again. I'd be a little upset about that. Like, how, how dare you cross your arms, get inside of this house and party with us, right? What does the Bible say? That he, the father, goes outside to the son with a bad attitude, and he entreats him, starts talking to him, starts to try to plead with him to come inside and explain his point of view. The son's just not having it. He's just kind of dug in. I can't believe after he did all this to you. I can't believe after he broke your heart. I can't believe it's just not fair. It's not fair that he gets to come home and have this party. It's not fair that he gets all this stuff that you gave him before he went away and spent it, and now you're going to give him more stuff and throw this party. It's just not fair. And maybe you're in the room and you relate to that older brother. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a while. Maybe you've been faithful in your walk with Christ, and maybe you haven't wandered. 
But one thing that I know is that the longer that we follow Jesus, the easier it is for us to get offended when somebody else receives a blessing that we felt we deserve more. The longer I follow Jesus, the harder it is for me to see somebody else that hasn't followed Jesus as long get what I hope that I would get from God. Can we just be really honest today? It doesn't really matter. I'm going to be honest. And we, we justify it through a billion different ways, but the reality is this, is that we look at those other people that we know, the other people that sit on the same row that we do, and we know that we've been following Jesus for a long time, and maybe they just came to Christ, and we say something like, well, they got a promotion at work, and I'm stuck in my job. That is not fair. I've been serving God all these years. It's just not fair. I've been, I've been tithing for my whole life. They've been tithing for two weeks, and they get a check in the mail, and I'm not sure how I'm going to make rent this week. And they've only been serving on that direction team for a really, really short time, but they get the Desti Award at the volunteer dinner, and I get nothing. Like, I get overlooked. I've been here since day one. And they've got all this joy. It feels like everything is just falling into place for them, one thing after the next after the next. And when I look up, man, my life is just full of disappointment and disappointment and disappointment and trial and tribulation and all this kind of stuff. It's just not fair, man. I, I am still living with this pain in my body, and they've been healed. That is just not fair. You see, our problem is, is that we start thinking that we have somehow earned the right to be God's sons or daughters the longer that we follow after him. That older son, his biggest problem was that he felt like he earned or deserved something more because he didn't leave and live that lifestyle of the younger brother. And the biggest difference between these two sons at this moment in the story is that one knew he didn't deserve to be in the family and the other one felt like he earned it. But neither of them did anything to get into the family they were born into it. It wasn't about who they were or what they did. It was about whose they were. And somebody needs to hear that because you have been comparing your blessings and the grace that God's given you with somebody else's grace and somebody else's blessings. And I can tell you that the best thing that we can do when we find ourselves comparing our grace to somebody else's is just to celebrate that person. You don't want to hear this part. When you're tempted to compare, just celebrate him. When you're tempted to look at that other person who's only been following Jesus for a little bit and I've been following Jesus my whole life and they get what I want, and I'm tempted to say, well, that's not fair. Well, what would happen if I just went in the house and partied with him? What would the ending of this story have been like if the older son just would have gone inside? It's amazing what happens to your heart when you're raising the roof, Right? When you're dancing, when you're celebrating somebody else being blessed by God, it's amazing what happens to your own heart in the process. Because what happens is while you're celebrating their success and while you're celebrating the grace that God has given to them, God is getting your heart ready for that same blessing that you've been waiting for. It's just that you're not focused on all the negative energy. Now you're focused on celebrating their accomplishments, their successes, their achievements, their blessings. And man, God loves to bless people that can celebrate somebody else's blessing. So the prodigal son, father, the two sons, we know this now that the prodigal son, that term, I want to put it on the screen again, means spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. And we know that this definition absolutely fits the younger son, without a doubt. The kid was wasteful and extravagant and reckless and didn't care what happened. 
But let's think back to the actions of the father in this story. He lets his son walk off with his inheritance. And then when he comes back after saying, I wish you were dead, he runs and embraces him. The other son is angry outside and the father goes to that son to try to get that son to celebrate the lost being found. So maybe by the definition of prodigal that we now know, maybe we should call this the prodigal father. What if we started looking at God and what he has done through this definition? It's reckless. It is extravagant that God would send his only son to die as a sacrifice for me just in case I choose to believe in him someday. That's reckless by our account. That is extravagant by definition. That even while we were still sinners, Christ gave his life for us. The price that was paid, the ransom that was taken care of by Jesus's blood is absolutely extravagant. The fact that God knows everything we've done and everything that we're going to do and chooses to love us and forgive us is reckless and it is extravagant. That he would run to us when we are a long way off and he would come out to bring us back home is extravagant. He is a prodigal God and he offers prodigal grace. Our opportunity is to receive it, it's to accept it, to stop trying to earn it, to stop trying to be good enough to get it because it's already there. And instead for us to open our hearts and say, God, I accept that grace that you've given me. I accept that grace when I've been far away from you. I accept the grace of being in your family, even if I've been following you for years and years and years and years. There's grace. We just get to accept it. Thank you for listening to the podcast of DCC. For service times and directions, log on to www.destinycommunitychurch.org. Thanks again for listening.